Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, May the 1st. And as we begin a new month, we begin a new sermon series. We're going to dive into the deep end of the Old Testament, and we're going to be looking at the book of Job. Job 19, verses 25 through 26 says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has thus has been thus destroyed, then from my flesh, in my flesh, in the Hebrew, I shall see God. The gripping and challenging book of Job is perhaps one of the most fascinating books of the Old Testament, and it begins this a new division in the scriptures. The books from Genesis to Esther are all narrative books and are really meaningful to us is these living parables as types worked out in actual history with which we can see what's going on in our own lives. And then Job begins another section, the poetical books of the Bible, which also includes Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then even Lamentations tucked in behind Jeremiah. Job is, is a great poem. Some have said that it is perhaps even the greatest poem in all of literature. Perhaps nothing that Shakespeare has written exceeds this book in beauty of expression, just as a literary work. It it is admired everywhere as one of the most beautiful writings that mankind, humanity, has ever known. But it is more than an expressive, dramatic writing. It has a very great message. And we're going to learn that. It's a drama. It's an epic drama, similar to, to, again, historically, something like the Iliad or the Odyssey, the poems by Homer from the Greek world. But the book of Job is also history. You see, Job was an actual living person, and these events actually took place. But God recounts them for us in this beautiful style so that, so that we might have an answer to some of those age-old haunting questions. Why Why does apparently senseless tragedy strike humanity? I think anytime we, we get into the difficulties, it is well to turn to the, it is well to turn to the book of Job. Here is a man who experienced an agony of human despair and desolation of spirit, which accompanied the apparently meaningless and senseless tragedies that came into his life. Now, the ultimate answer to that question is given right at the very beginning of the book. At the opening, we're handed certain program notes, if you will, that explain to us something about the drama, something which even the, the actors themselves are, are not permitted to know. The answer is given in that senseless suffering comes out of Satan's continual challenge to the government, to the rule of God. So as the book opens, we find God meeting with the angelic creation, and among them is Satan, who strides in, sneering, swaggering, convinced that, that it's self-interest that's the, really the only real motive for human behavior. You see, Satan's philosophy is that the question of, hey, what's in it for me, is really the only accurate explanation of why people do anything. And here, in the presence of God, he asserts that anyone who claims that human beings act from more, uh, any more from any other motive is simply phony. It's not true. 
And then furthermore, he claims he can prove it. And God says, rather patiently, all right, we'll test your theory. And then he selects the man Job to be the proving ground. If we go back in history, a little more modern history, but still back in history, in World War II, at the opening of the war between Japan and the United States, it looked as though this conflict would be staged in the Pacific Ocean, very likely the islands of Hawaii, because the battle began at Pearl Harbor. But very early in the war, um, if you are a student of history, you'll remember that events took a sudden turn, and and really without much warning, the whole theater of battle shifted to the South Pacific. And so for the first time, Americans began to hear of names that they had never heard of, like the Guala Canal and others. And, and there in these quiet, out-of-the-way corners of the earth, the greatest powers on earth were locked in combat. And these islands became the battleground for the great fight between empires. And something like this happened in the story of Job. Here's a man going about his private affairs, unaware that he has suddenly become the center of God's attention. For the time being, all of God's activity has focused on him, and he has become the battleground for a conflict between God and Satan, in which God is planning to to kind of pull the rug out from under Satan and to reveal him as the phony that he is. And and Job is, is that battleground, and Satan immediately moves in uh, was sort of a shock and awe type type of strategy. In chapter one, we read that one by one, the the, the props, the the things that hold up Job's life, were pulled out. Hard hard on the heels of the first comes another one, and and the messages keep coming. First, all of Job's oxen have been taken by enemy raids, and then all of his his donkeys have been decimated, and then next comes that that this that his sheep have been killed and killed in this amazing, terrible electric storm. And, and crowding in after that is the news that the great herd of camels, which would have been true wealth in the ancient world, has been wiped out in a natural catastrophe. Then comes heart-wrenching news that his seven sons and three daughters were together in one home enjoying a birthday when this tornado hit the house and demolished it. And all of his children were killed in one, sh- in one blow. And Job just continues to take this all in. And at the end of chapter one, his response to this terrible, unimaginable series of tragedy, of senseless acts is, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, and the Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. I wonder if I would have responded like that. You know, Satan is somewhat taken aback, so so he asked God to change the rules of the game. Satan has decided to attack Job more, more directly and petitions God for the right to strike at Job's own body, and God grants it. Without warning, Job is suddenly stricken with, um, with this series of, of boils. Consider how Job is, is struck down with these from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. He hardly knows what to do, but he's determined to wait it out. The, the illness continues and his wife is the one whose, whose faith finally bends and, and succumbs. And she turns on, on him and says, are you still holding fast to your integrity? Why don't you curse God and die? And, and Job has to stand alone. 
but he's determined to be faithful. Then comes the, the final test when he receives a visit from three of his friends. And, and at this point, the whole the whole book slightly shifts its focus, and, and we're no longer looking only at Job, but also at his his controversy with these these three friends, and their their conversation occupies a major part of the book. From their very human point of view, they attempt to answer that same haunting questions. Why do senseless tragedies afflict humanity? Why do bad things happen to us? And, and the major part of the book, written in this beautiful poetic language, records the attempts by these men to come to an answer. And, and the three friends' answers are really all the same. They, they answer the question of Job's problems with very, very smug, very uh, sometimes dogmatic assurances that the only one the only one explanation that there's only one explanation that's possible that he job has committed some awful sin and and they try to break down job's defenses with with arguments now they're not necessarily wrong in their explanation there are tragic events catastrophes heartache pain suffering which do happen which do occur because of sin Anytime we violate the laws of God's universe, including the laws of health, there, there's, there's an immediate and sometimes violent physical reaction. And a lot of suffering, in fact, comes from that. But the problem in his friend's argument, and, and they're evil, really, is in this assertion that this is the only explanation possible for all kinds of suffering. They, they, they each take turns. They take couple rounds with Job, each of them presenting the arguments, nine are all in all, and, and each sort of plays the same tune. They try various approaches. First, they, they try sarcasm and irony. Then they appeal to Job's honesty. Then they accuse him of some specific crimes and, and, and things he had done. And then finally, they act, they act hurt and they go away. They're, they're ticked off. They're sulking. They're, they're pridefully appealing to Job's conscience not to insult them anymore. And, and all the time they're attacking his integrity with the argument that if God is indeed just, then the righteous are always blessed and the wicked always suffer. Therefore, if an individual is suffering, it must be because there's something wrong in his life. This is their argument. To these men, the explanation is a simple matter of cause and effect. That is very logical. It's neat and tidy, and, and, and it explains everything. That is, unless you happen to be the sufferer. At first, Job is slightly irritated with these friends, but then he becomes angry and finally sarcastic. And in the opening lines of his reply, he delivers a, a cutting piece of irony. I, and he says this, he says, I am sure you alone are the people and wisdom is going to die with you. Job 12, 2. You've got all the answers. You've, you've solved all the problems. You know everything. So there's no use talking to you any longer. With this sarcasm, he replies that their explanation of suffering is wrong. And resentful, he, he, he openly pleads with them to understand. He, he says he can't confess sin because he is genuinely unaware of anything he has done that has offended God. And moreover, he can't believe in injustice any longer because their arguments that the wicked always suffer simply are not true. He, he points out that many people who are very wicked, notoriously wicked even, seem to be prospering and flourishing and living in ease and nothing horrible is happening to them at all. And then he says 
He doesn't know what to do because God won't listen to him. He doesn't even have a chance to plead his case before God. And he complains that that God hides from him and can't be found. And eventually Job actually shouts at these three friends and the, and the the, this mass of his confusion and bewilderment and anger and hurt and frustration. And he says he is afraid of this God who is not the God he has known. He doesn't know what has happened to his dear old friend who, who he could always rely on. And Job has taken a strange turn in his attitude now that these awful things are happening to him. He's uncertain what to think or what to say. The glorious thing about this very real man is that throughout the whole book, He is utterly and completely honest. I'll say that again. He is utterly and completely honest, confused and bewildered and puzzled by what is happening. He simply blurts out his thoughts. He refuses to admit things that he cannot accept. All these pat answers don't help. And and, and in his desolation, he expresses in various ways the, the ultimate cry of the human spirit. And some, some wonderful verses emerge from, from this uh, discourse by Job. He cries out again and again with some of the deepest expressions of the human heart. In chapter 9, he says of God, he says, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to, that, that we should come to trial together. In Hebrew, his words were, are literally, would that there were an umpire between us. Oh, that there were a, a daysman, a mediator between us who might, who might put his hands on us both. And that's the cry of a heart that recognizes that God is higher and greater and richer and holier than humanity. And humanity cannot reach him. It is the cry for a mediator to come between a holy God and us. It is the prophetic cry for a savior, for Jesus himself. And then in chapter 14 comes another expression out of this man's heart. If, if, if a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait till my release should come. If I knew that after I would die, I would live again, I would gladly wait until that time to argue my case before God. If a man dies, shall he live again? That This great quiet cry, the question uttered by so many, it comes out of the depths of this man's suffering and his, and his desolation. In chapter 16, Job cries out, Even now, behold, my, my witness is in heaven, and that he that vouches for me is on high. Earlier, he had cried out for a mediator. Oh, that I might have somebody step in between me and God. And now at last, born of this, his desperation, I realize now that the only one who can adequately argue my case for me is God himself. If any cause of mine is going to be fairly presented before God, God himself has to do it. It has to be Jesus in chapter 19 comes this, this other distress cry, and, and this sounds this whole note of this awful intent. Oh, that, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead that they were graven in the rock forever. That prayer was fulfilled in this record, the book of Job. And then at last, a ray of light shines in the darkness. For I know that my Redeemer lives 
and at last he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, then from my flesh I shall see God. Out of the dark, deep distress of this man comes these cries which find their fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. He came to be the mediator. He came to give us assurance that man can live again. He came to stand between humanity and God. He came to stand in the flesh on the earth that man might see him face to face. And now comes the final blow to Job after all these so-called friends have had their chance with him and have tried to beat him down with their arguments, pounding him again and, and again like a club. Poor Job, bruised, defeated, puzzled, bewildered, confused. He, he meets with a young man who, who happened to be kind of standing there all along, but, but who, who is only now interjected in, in the picture. Um, and speaking for youth, he stands up to say, you're, you're all wrong. You friends of Job are wrong because you accuse him unjustly. And Job is wrong because he blames God for his difficulty. He is accusing God in order to to exonerate himself. And he points out the weaknesses in both arguments, but still offers nothing positive to, to answer the question of Job's misery. But suddenly the Lord himself answers Job. In a whirlwind fury, he comes to him and says, Do you, do you want to debate Job? You've been saying that you want some answers to your questions and that I've been hiding and I'm not willing to debate with you. Do you want to debate your case? All right, then let me see your qualifications. I have a list here of 40 questions I'd like to ask you to see if you are competent to understand problems. These are very simple problems, very simple questions. And if you're able to handle these ABCs, then perhaps you are able to debate with me in the questions you have in your heart. Then in chapters 38 through 40, we have one of the most remarkable passages in all of Scripture. God takes Job on a tour of nature and asks him question after question about Job's ability to deal with this kind of thing or or that kind of thing in nature. And gradually, these three chapters draw the picture of a vastly complicated, this intricately, very intricately intertwined universe in, in which is required a tremendous superhuman mind to to direct all of these these activities to keep life in balance and to answer all the questions that the Lord is asking Job to answer. And at the end of this overwhelming display of wisdom of, of God, Job simply falls down on his face and he says, I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. Before I despise, therefore I despise myself and repent and dust and ashes. God's essential argument is that life is too complicated for simple answers. If, if we're demanding that God come up with simple answers to keep to these deep and complicated problems, we're asking him to do more than we are able to understand. He is simply saying that only God can adequately deal with the answers to these kinds of questions. So man must take the position of trusting him, not arguing with him, And God has displayed in the most amazing way his ability to work out complicated situations while keeping human life and 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 the life of the entire world with all these amazingly involved complexities in this balance. And now if we really see that, then we must trust God to work out these complicated problems. Job, overwhelmed by the 
the vast might and the wisdom and the majesty of God falls on his face. He repents and he learns the lesson that God wants him to learn, that only God has the right to use men for whatever his purposes he desires. In other words, God does not exist for humanity, but humanity exists for God. God is not, is not a glorified waiter where we can snap our fingers and make him and make him run up asking that, you know, hey, may I take your order? I mean, we exist for him. We are God's instruments for the working out of his purposes, some of which are so complicated that they're way beyond my ability, our ability to understand. There are many questions which simply cannot be answered because our machinery, our mind, is, is just so inadequate. And then the last of the book is this beautiful picture of what James calls the tender mercies of God towards Job. God says to Job, now I want to pray for your friends, these three dear men, so stubborn, so sure that they had all the answers, so well-meaning, so sincere, so dedicated, but such blunderers. So pray for them, Job. And then, and then God said to Job, how many sheep did you have? And Job said 7,000. And and God said, all right, I'll give you 14. And how many oxen did you have? And he said, 500. And God said, okay, I'll, I'll give you 1,000. How about camels? How many? And 3,000. All right, Job, you'll have 6,000 camels. How many How many donkeys did you have? 500. I'll, I'll give you 1,000. How many sons and daughters? Seven sons and three daughters. All right, you'll you'll have seven sons and three daughter, daughters more, doubled, twice as many. Seven sons and three daughters in glory, and seven sons and three daughters on earth. And God restored twice as much to Job as he lived the rest of his life in blessedness and happiness. And the account closes with these words, And Job died, an old man, and full of days. Now, the remarkable thing about this book is the answer we are given. The fact that the backdrop to, to human suffering, the, the age-long conflict of Satan's challenge to God's righteousness and government of the universe, this answer is, is never given to Job, at least not while he lives. At the beginning of the book, we find, we find God and Satan and Job, and, and at the end of the book, Satan has faded out of the picture entirely, and, and, and God stands with Job, his arms open, saying, all right, I'm, I, am, I am responsible. Any, any questions? And, and the great lesson of the book is that there, there are times when we cannot be told the whole picture. There are times when God does not adequately explain life to us. There are times when we must trust that not all suffering occurs because we're bad, but because it can also be the source of some final good. And the deepest note in the book I think it may be struck when out of the desolation of his heart and with the spirit of God within inside him, urging him on to faith in the midst of bewilderment, Job says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And that's the lesson of this book. Life is too complicated for us to handle alone. It gets so involved that we can't even be, be given some of the answers at times. But God is saying, if you just take a look at all the problems that I keep solving on the very simplest levels of life, and which even then are far beyond our, your, our, my ability to cope with, can't you trust me to work this one out as well? In Romans, Paul rejoices, we know that in everything, God works for good with those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. 
So I hope you'll continue to join us for these next several weeks as we go through this remarkable book. Amen, and God bless.